Hello. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is my pleasure, on the behalf of the Kamagasa Challenge, to welcome you to the first episode of Conversations with Stephen Kamagasa. Today's special guest is the Right Reverend Dr. Alan Wilson, the Bishop of Buckingham. Bishop Wilson was born in Edinburgh and was brought up in East London and Kent. He was educated at St John's College, at the University of Cambridge, and then Balliol College at Oxford University, where he completed a doctoral degree in modern historical theology. Dr Wilson has been the Bishop of Buckingham since 2003 and is a member of the Council of Christians and Jews, the Howard League for Penal Reform, the Widom Place Charlemagne Trust, and the Ecclesiastical Law Society. Dr. Wilson is the author of More Perfect Union, Understanding Same-Sex Christian Marriage. The Kamgasa Challenge is an online blog website for sharing thoughts with the intention of inspiring our own and the next generation to turn challenges into coherent and meaningful solutions, focusing on humanity, leadership and citizenship. To learn more about the blog, please visit thekamgasachallenge.com. In this series of conversations, we will bring together thought leaders to talk about how to challenge ourselves and others with the view of solving pressing issues facing us today. In these vacillating times of rising nationalism and xenophobia, this special episode is dedicated to ordinary men and women who did much to help me during my sole years as a penniless refugee in England. For they not only risked both money and reputation to meet my needs, but they also supported my education even when it seemed hopeless. The episode is also dedicated to an Oxford charity, Widow Trust International. It was Robin Scheuer's report, the charity's long-term executive director, that was decisive in persuading the authorities of the University of Buckingham to throw their institutional weight behind me. To learn more about the charity, please visit widow.org.uk. Now, in this episode 001, we discuss refugees and foreigners are welcome. And we endeavor to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Bishop Wilson, the English have long seen themselves and still see, and some still continue to see themselves as members of a proud and independent imperial race. It is an open secret that English nationalism was the key driver that led to the most momentous event in recent British history, Brexit. As this summer's events have shown, and I'm here speaking of 
England's climatic defeat by Italy in the Euro 2020 <clears throat> final at Wembley Stadium. The combined effect of Brexit and global pandemic are tearing asunder the social fabric of British society as never before. These are indeed desperate times for our country. Fixing our gaze upon England specifically, if we may, of all the countries in the Union, England stands out as the one country which has suffered the most at the hands of COVID-19. But thanks to the shy Turkish refugee boy who was instrumental in cracking the COVID vaccine, there is light at the end of the tunnel as more and more Englishmen and women are now double-jabbed with a vaccine. Bishop Wilson, here's my first question. Suppose a young refugee boy, and I'm here thinking particularly about events happening in Afghanistan, were to mysteriously wash up on the English shores of Kent, would that boy be welcomed to England with an open arms today? Well, it's a really timely question, Stephen. You know, I've just watched the one o'clock news with people desperate to get out of Afghanistan. Very often people whose lives are in danger because over the last 20 years they uh, worked with Western powers to uh, to produce a more uh, Western friendly Afghanistan in good faith. And there's a sense of betrayal and a sense of obligation and the sense that many of our politicians uh, may have bit off more than they could chew, maybe didn't understand the challenges involved in keeping faith with these people. And I think there's quite a sense of uh, kind of frustration and and disappointment and uh, anger as well that we haven't been able to take better care of people who put their lives on the line for us. Indeed. Um, I mean, you know, I speak as someone that wasn't too keen on going into Afghanistan in the first place, but once you've done it, um, you have to be responsible for the the results of of what you do. There's a saying they have in uh, gift shops, you know, if Mm. you break it, then you have to pay for it. Absolutely, (laughs) yes. uh, You know, and that we have a particular obligation there which, um, you know, the politicians are struggling to fulfill. So, yeah, it's it's a very timely time to ask that question. And it's a great question because um, my first experience of being uh, what in the 1950s was called a bloody foreigner was because my father was away in the army. My mother was Hungarian. And therefore, for all that people uh, where we lived in, in, in London thought, we were bloody foreigners. <laughs> so uh, also, I have to say, my roots in the UK are Scottish rather than English. So um, we, we, we love the English, as you know. We, <laughs> uh, I think there are lovely things about the English. Um, I don't quite understand their class system. I don't know why they do that. Uh, it seems to me rather bonkers if you look at the way the English do golf and the way the Scots do golf. You know, in Scotland, you you pay a fiver and have a game of golf because you want a game of golf. In England, you pay up £5,000 and join a club to go to the bar and they might let you in in a year yeah, if you have yeah. the right to make a golf club. It's a very different kind of social attitude. So uh, I'm a sort of insider-outsider character and that goes very, very deeply in where I am. So I suppose uh, the experience of, of being a, an insider-outsider in England is a bit... Um, well, it's, it's, it's bipolar, really. On the one hand, 
Uh, and I think most importantly, because it's the most fundamental thing, most English people I know are, are, are fantastically understanding and compassionate to real human beings. Mm. You know, they have a sense for the underdog. Um, they, they don't like to see injustice. They will stand up when they think wrong is being done. There's a story we've had in the UK about an alpaca that the government wants oh, yes, to Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've been following that. Yes. Uh, Geronimo the alpaca, you know, yes. tens of thousands of people, are, you know, are writing in and making a fuss because they feel an injustice has been done. And I remember about uh, 40 years ago in London, there was a man called um, George Davis. He, he was a crook, hmm. but he was convicted for a crime he did not commit, along with various other crimes, which I think he did commit. But all over London were these graffiti saying, you know, G. Davis is innocent. And I think that sense of justice and that compassion for other people and for the underdog is is very deep in the way that English people are. Mm. And if you can engage it, I think our small boy landing on the English shores of Kent, um, if it were up to the people that lived there, I think would find immense compassion and understanding and, uh, and uh, you know, the kind of safe haven that my mother found in this country. She left her homeland in Central Europe in the 1930s and um, will always be grateful for the fact it was Britain that she ended up in. But, of course, as you say, we're in the age of uh, Johnson and Trump and all the rest of it. And right now it's politically sexy um, to kind of play on people's fear of difference mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. And whether this is a reaction to being a more diverse society, whether it's something to do with social division and inequality, mm -hmm. whether it's something to do with austerity, but it plays on those fears. And that hits a very deep tickle button for me, because when I think of conversations I had with my mother about life in Central Europe in the 1930s, getting people to fear and distrust their uh, people who are different was very much part of the whole breakdown of, of civic and social life in Central Europe in the 1930s. Indeed. And uh, I, would, uh, I would feel awful if we went anywhere near that in Britain, of all places, yes. where our value system should give us some kind of awareness about these things and immunity against it. So I think the answer is... Um, Yes, I think English people would be very likely to respond compassionately and imaginatively and look for the best in people. And there's a long tradition of doing that in this country. But I think some of our present politicians seem to make political capital uh, out of sending up dog whistle signals that yes. people foreign and different, yes. are somehow inferior. And there's that whole imperial script you talk about. Mm. I think we're still trying to get over the whole imperial thing more than we probably know. Yes. And I think the sooner we do get over it, uh, the better, because we're better than that. But I there agree. is this nostalgia driver in English culture. Um, that, that There's a guy who's a German stand-up comic, and he said when he came to England, he turned on the telly, and there was a program about the Second World War and Hitler. And he thought, oh, that's interesting. Oh, fancy them having a program about that. I think I'll watch it. And then there was one the next night and the next night and the night after that and the night after that. I mean, these things were 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to move on from that part of our life. I mean, you know, my father, who was decorated for uh, bravery and the war, he would want us to move on and have a better life, mm -hmm. not to be stuck in replaying a kind of nostalgic Groundhog Day from what we imagine 
imagine it was like 40 or 50 years ago. And fear and suspicion of people who are different and are foreign and people who are a different color or ethnicity or religion to us seems to be part of the common currency of, of, of our modern politics. And I, I think that is desperately letting down the people whom our politicians represent, who are better than that and have shown they're better than that in so many ways down the years. Here, here. Continuing with the theme of refugees and foreigners, mm. what is your opinion about the ethics of using development aid to try and cut the flow of migrants, given that the UK takes such a small percentage of all the refugees in the world? Is it right? Well, I saw the league table I think you're talking about the other day, Stephen, and I, you know, it was a kind of top 20 countries in the world that take refugees as a proportion of their population. And I, I was shocked by how low Britain was mm. on that list, yes. particularly given, for what it's worth, that we're a country with some desperate labour shortages, desperate skills shortages. I mean, it seems insane to be telling perfectly good people that we don't want them because they come from the wrong place place. Um, so I think, yes, we don't have a glorious record of, uh, 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 you know, of, of receiving refugees in uh, recent years. And I think it's an intensely bureaucratic and difficult process for people. I mean, you see people hanging off the bottom of planes trying to leave Kabul. And then the Home Secretary is, is in the media saying we've got a scheme to have 20,000 people, but we won't have that ready for another year. But I think we'll have 5,000 to begin with. Yeah. And well, it's absurd. It just isn't taking seriously the reality of the dangers these people are facing. Now, when it comes to aid, um, I'm in a kind of I've got two different minds on aid. Of course, um, rich countries should uh, invest in the well-being of the world, including poor countries. Yes. But I think to use it as a kind of manipulative counter to get your own immigration figures down is desperately cynical. Um, I mean, I think one of the things we've learned during the COVID times is that the whole world suffers together. Absolutely. If, if there is an outbreak of, a, of, you know, another virus, sort of COVID, you know, 3.0 sort of thing, it doesn't really matter where that happens in the world. We're all in the cart, really. <laughs> and um, I, I think this whole sort of idea that somehow we're different and we're in this superior place where we don't have to bother about the well-being of other people because because it won't affect us. I think that is a very dated way of looking at the world. I, I just don't think it's like that anymore. So I think that using uh, aid a, as a kind of manipulative tool is is bad news for all sorts of reasons. It's unrealistic. It's dishonest. And uh, also, it, it lowers the standing of this country in the world. Absolutely. It, it's no, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I come back saying, I think we should be better than that. And I think at heart, we are. I but believe they, you're better than that. Yes. Who, you know, who need to be placated and people's prejudices that need to be fed to keep them buying the papers and you know so and all that stuff is true as well but I, I think it's very sad and i think it's an abuse of what ought to be viewed as investment in the well-being of everybody um regardless of uh, of politics and certainly not as a means of 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 kind of stopping people who need to be here from from being able to get access 
the official title of your doctoral thesis is The Theology of Church and Party of Some London Ritualistic Clergy and Parishes, 1880-1914, with special reference to Church Crisis of 1898-1906. Your thesis also bears the unofficial title, namely, The Authority of Church and Party Among London Anglo-Catholics, 1880-1914, with special reference to the Church Crisis, 1898-1904. Now, a great deal has changed since you completed your PhD, but some things stubbornly remain the same, namely the question about the Church of England's authority. In the 21st century, where the Church of England is less and less visible in public affairs, what must the Church do to give her the authority to insist that policy must recognise the value and dignity of all? That's a really good question, and I, I think you're, it's right to say that all churches have had problems about uh, authority, and they've got two sorts of problems about authority. One is how much have they got? You know, that's, that's very easy to talk about. You can measure whether or not people take any notice of the things they say. If, um, you know, bishops say something, does anybody take any notice of the fact that they're bishops? And I think that has declined steadily over the 40 years that I've been involved in public ministry. And that's not necessarily, a, you know, a bad thing, actually. But then there is what kind of authority are you talking about here? Is it the kind of privilege authority where you have some special pulpit somewhere that elevates you above everybody else? So everybody has to take you more seriously than anybody else. Or is it the authority that comes from serving people? And I'm often very struck that, you know, Jesus told his followers to do three things. He told them to break bread. He told them to baptize. He also told them to take up the towel and, and wash people's feet. And I think we in the Christian church in general, and certainly in the Church of England, have been much more um, assiduous at doing the first two things than we have the last, really. And I think that uh, in the modern world, um, authority is uh, given. You can't assume it. You have to earn it. And one of the ways you earn it is by service. Now, um, many things have changed since the 1880s in very interesting ways. Um, if some of the clergy that I studied in London in the 1880s could come back today, um, I think they would be disappointed that we've lost that sort of fire for transforming the world that these slum priests had in the 19th century. A very famous one was a slum priest in, um, in Portsmouth said, um, I campaign to have proper drains because I believe in the incarnation. Mm -hmm. His life was not about getting people to come to church for the sake of coming to church. It was to do with the transformation of all life by the Spirit of God. Absolutely. And, and there was a confidence that as this happened, life would be better for everybody, whoever they were. And I think uh, one of the reasons the Church of England's authority is compromised today is that we've withdrawn into being uh, solely in the religion business, really, 
in all kinds of ways. So we're seen as being a little minority who are very keen on religion, who for some inexplicable reason have views on what other people, nothing to do with us, get up to. And, you know, every time uh, somebody prominent in the church says anything, I mean, our own archbishop, I think, has a very noble record, actually, this archbishop and the last one of speaking out, for example, um, for Archbishop Welby about um, fraud and dishonesty in the city, about payday loans. Um, I think he's a very sincere man who knows what he's talking about mm. and has brought his intelligence and experience to bear on a big moral problem. But people instantly say, oh, you're supposed to be an archbishop. Why are you talking about debt? Why are you talking about poverty? Why are you talking about you should just be talking about religion? And I think that uh, it is very important that as a church we don't put ourselves in that box and become solely concerned with the religion business because um, – if we do, there's a severe danger that we'll end up following the scribes and Pharisees and not Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus wasn't really, Jesus wasn't obsessional about religion in the way that the scribes and the Pharisees were. And he told his followers to beware the um, leaven of the Pharisees. He said, yes. when, you, when you become a company of disciples, there's a process going on. And he said part of that process is what he called the leaven of the Pharisees. You start making, you know, your religion and the niceties of it and what you do and working out who's in and who's out and dealing with people who threaten you and all the things the Pharisees did. Hypocrisy, lying, pretending to yourself that you're better than you are. You know, Jesus had very strong views on these things. And I think we need to retain a very clear focus on Jesus, uh, much clearer than, 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 you know, the church as a kind of social agency, which we have to somehow pretend is better than it is. And I, I hope that we can recover that sense, if you like, of, of mission that some of those slum priests had in the 19th century. Uh, they broke bread and they baptized people. You know, they sent nuns down the roads of the East End of London saying, when is that baby going to be baptized? You know, it wasn't sort of, <laughs> do you qualify to join my club? There wasn't any element of that, really. Uh, and I think that uh, passion about the transformation of all life under God, which there was in, you know, in, in the East End in the in the 19th century, we could do with a bit more of that now and perhaps less cynicism and despair and poor me and the church feeling sorry for itself and somehow trying to make itself more important by having views on things that are extrinsic. <laughs> we believe in the incarnation. We need to fix the drains, you know, and I think that perspective is something I learned from those people that I think we could do with more of now. Bishop Wilson, let us be brutally honest. The Church of Christ, and I'm here speaking in terms of the global church, is in a very poor posture right now. If the church is to repair her standing and her effectiveness as Christ's body in the world, which matter, in your opinion, must be given the highest priority? Well, I think um, it's that's a really interesting question, because when we read about the church in the New Testament, St. Paul speaks of it as something which is dying all the time, 
but also being renewed from within all the time. It's like, um, well, it's like a human body where, you know, the, the dead skins fall off the outside, but the, the heart is alive and beating and there is renewal uh, from within. And I think what we need to be doing is asking ourselves, where is the fire? You know, where are the, the cells growing um, and growing in their um, passion and their effectiveness in changing the world in line with kingdom values? You know, the things that Jesus talked about and the things that mattered to Jesus and the things that he talked about. And I think that... Um, too often we ask ourselves, what have we always done? You know, confronted with a problem, what shall we do? Well, let's do what we've always done. And we look in the book for that. Or uh, what do we have to do? You know, or are we constrained in some way, including by our own fears half the time? I think if we ask ourselves, where can we see, if you like, the shoots of the kingdom around us? And we prioritize those areas of what we see over and above um, if you like, our own hygiene factors. Um, because Jesus says the people who center their whole life on saving their lives are the people who've lost it <laughs> far more than they know. Indeed. The people who find life are the people who are willing to be spent and who are unconditionally committed um, uh, and, and will give their lives. <laughs> Those are the people who change the world. So I think we need to be uh, looking very carefully at where um, uh, where what we do as churches connects with people at their points of deepest need, including ourselves. And we need to be prioritizing those areas of our life over perhaps the things that are dead on their feet or nobody actually believes in them anymore. Uh, they might have been a good idea 100 years ago, but they're not a good idea today. Um, we need to remember uh, that the, the body of the church, yes, there are dead cells and there is a deadness about it. And we need to accept that. Pretending that somehow we don't have deadness within us is, I think, a theological problem as well as a, a, a practical folly. But um, But going for those places where there is uh, effective engagement with people um, and we've had a sign of that, actually, in England in the last five, ten years. And that's been, and I say this, I'm, I'm ashamed that I have to say this, but if we look at the way that churches have got going with food banks, yes, yes. that has been an extraordinary change in the last ten years. For people like me of the sort of National Health Service generation, we believed we lived in England. You, you didn't need anything like that because it was all going to be looked after by the government. We're now discovering that where churches uh, engage with poverty, Christians Against Poverty, mm. uh, has been an extraordinary ministry, where they engage with people at their points of need, and often the food banks are the places where where they present themselves, uh, that, that actually people aren't anti-church at all. Mm. Mm. <laughs> what they're anti is a church that is just concerned with itself. It is well said that a little stone in a shoe will make a traveller limp. Mm -hmm. At General Synod in 2019, the Church of England announced that same-gender couples may remain married and recognised as married after one spouse expertises as gender transition, provided that the spouses identified as opposite genders at the time of their marriage. 
evidently the Church of England is divided is divided on the issue of same-sex marriage so much so that it is not unusual for some churchmen and women pointing the old finger to the shame of us all. Does the Church of England understand her sacred call to love your neighbour as yourself? <laughs> it's a very challenging question. I, I think the Church of England is divided on uh, same-sex marriage in the same way as every Christian community is. There are people who have deep convictions that this is a sort of category error, and then there are people uh, who can't see what the problem is, really. Um, and and that's so uh, our colleagues in the Methodist Church uh, have changed their policy this year. But I think one of the things that really excited me about the Methodist document that went through the Methodist conference was its honest acknowledgement that people in good faith may see this thing differently and they need to engage with one another and work it out. But in the meanwhile, the Church of England does seem to be fearfully hung up on this one. Every other Anglican church I know of has somehow been able to bash its way through all this stuff um, much, much more swiftly in Scotland, uh, in Wales, uh, in the States. Um, you know, uh, progress has happened in a much more uh, honest and straightforward way. There seems to be something rather odd about the Church of England. And I, I suppose... <laughs> Speaking as a Hungarian Scot, I associate it with a kind of English cultural prissiness about sex or something. I mean, those of us who weren't brought up with that mm. have no idea why this can't just be worked out on a much more uh, sane and pragmatic level, really. Um, and I think that uh, it does come down in the end, of course, to loving your neighbour as yourself. Um, and... Uh, you know, that doesn't mean I know what's good for you, so I'm going to tell you what you've got to do. And then if it kills you, then it's your fault, not mine, which has uh, customarily been. And if you talk about uh, same-sex couples, what are they meant to do? Um, I mean, I would say that like anybody else, um, the, the paradigm uh, for uh, their lives towards which I would advise them to aim is one of stability, of self-giving love, of mutuality founded on mutual respect of the other one's dignity. This is so of any two group of people. And when it comes to marriage, I would say that the marriage uh, of Jesus Christ to the church is the Christian pattern. And certainly that's a same-sex marriage, isn't it? There are three billion Christians in the world, half of them. Are, I mean, you know, the whole idea of difference of gender being fundamental to it um, uh, culturally uh, has very often been the case. But in fact, um, the things about marriage that make it an analogy to the relationship of Jesus with the church um, are nothing to do with difference of gender. Um, they're everything to do with self-giving love, to do with a commitment to permanence, to do with a commitment to giving, to do with self-giving love, freely given to the other person by grace. Um, th these are the gold standard for, for our relationships. And um, there's nothing in that about um, some of the things that people go on about in terms of same-sex marriage. Um I mean, when I hear people say, 
uh, well, marriage from a Christian point of view is all about being able to produce children or being open to the transmission of life and having a different gender. Um, this seems to me, I, I can see no evidence that that's the case at all. Um, uh, historically, Jesus was a man, but is he less married to male members of the church? I, I don't understand that at all. It's nothing to do with difference of gender at all. And um, in terms of producing children, uh, you know, Jesus and the church produce children. Who are they? I mean, these are aspects of marriage which are culturally very important, but theologically less significant. And I think that uh, we really would do ourselves a favour by getting our heads around this. And in the meanwhile, of course, people should respect the, the conscientious scruples of other people in the way that, for example, um, in the Church of England, uh, we went through a phase of about 100 years when they had a tremendous down on marrying divorcees. Uh, intriguingly, marrying divorcees was mandatory in the Church of England. <laughs> um, for hundreds of years, actually, from the, the 18th century, when divorce came in, uh, right up to the 1920s, it was actually mandatory to marry divorcees in the Church of England. But of course, there weren't many of them. There were sorts of things you could say about that. Um, suddenly, we decided this was the most terrible thing on the grounds that Jesus had said very negative things about divorce. Um, but through all that period from uh, the 1930s on, uh, there was always liberty of conscience for those clergy who did believe it was right to marry divorcees. And I think that same liberty of conscience should be allowed for now. Um, that's all. I don't want to force someone who believes they're doing something deeply wrong to do something you don't believe in. And I think the pattern in the Bible is, is Romans 14, which is about not just tolerating people, but understanding people who see things different from you and not dimming down the differences, mm. but conscientiously standing for what you really believe in, but being aware of the impact you have on the other person. And I think Romans 14 is a much sounder pattern for how the Church of England should deal with this than just sort of bungling and politics and lots of fantasy from the 1930s about the Church of England and marriage which, of course, many members of the population think for the Church of England to be going on about marriage is a bit ironic, uh, given, given you know, uh, the influence of Henry VIII on the Church of England. <laughs> it's the last church on earth that ought to be going around being soapy and hypocritical about marriage. Um, it's part of our story, not a very glorious part of our story, you may say. So I, I think we really ought to grow up about this whole business. And I think that many other churches, including in England, the Methodists, but Anglican churches in, in Scotland and in Wales have uh, led the way. And I, I think, uh, you know, nobody actually has been forced to do anything against their conscience. So that's that's helped that. And on the other hand, we're not saying to gay people look, you are inferior and the only relationships you can have with people are sort of second best because of who you are. Because that seems to me it is really seriously at odds with loving our neighbour as ourselves, which is the primary Christian calling. I think you've answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, giving credit where credit is due, you have personally taken loving your neighbour as yourself to a level higher by publishing a book in 2014 entitled More Perfect Union, Understanding Same-Sex Marriage. 
Now, the book was received with mixed reviews at its publication, but in light of your book, does the official position of the Church of England on same-sex frustrate you? And if yes, why? Um, The simple answer is yes, it does. And it frustrates me because it's profoundly hypocritical and pharisaic. Actually, that's unfair on Pharisees. A lot of Pharisees are much more intelligent and a lot less hypocritical than that. Look at Nicodemus, you know. Um, but, but yeah, because it's hypocritical. And I think as a bishop, uh, I have a duty to be attentive to the well-being of the church. And a church that is riddled through and through with hypocrisy and lying is not living up to its calling to be the bride of Christ. And that's why it matters, actually. It's not about being nice to gay people. I mean, by all means, love your neighbor as yourself and be nice to everybody, including gay people. But if the church starts playing silly, hypocritical games, then I think the church diminishes itself. And we come back to the question you asked earlier, Stephen, about why the church doesn't have more authority. I think people find hypocrisy a real turnoff. And when people start saying, oh, well, you know, we, we don't really know what's wrong. We don't do that there here because we don't want to upset a group of people who, who've got a lot of money. Or, you know, I think people smell a big rat and they think that's nothing to do with Jesus Christ at all. And everything to do with people trying to sort of, you know, play at church or something. So, I mean, that's why I'm concerned about it. It's to do with the well-being of, of the church and the present policy is profoundly hypocritical and wrong and unnecessary and actually profoundly at odds uh, not so much in the content, but in the mentality behind it, to the way that all churches, including the Church of England, have historically coped with marriage, where they did not, by and large, sit there saying, you know, well, these people think they're married, but we all know they're not. The, the medieval definitions of marriage were very minimal. It was given by consent between the parties to live together as, as spouses. It, it wasn't a sort of big legal thing where you needed the church to say yes to it. Uh, and I think we would do far better to return to our roots. And I, I'm intrigued that if you look at the um, Doctrine Commission of the Church of England that met between 1922 and 1936, they produced a, a report on doctrine in the Church of England uh, where they went through all the sacraments and sacramental acts that define the church, including marriage. And I think the section, it's a very short section by William Temple's Doctrine Commission from 1936 on marriage is superb. And it would provide an excellent theological framework for marriage, whether it's uh, same sex or not. It, it doesn't take difference of sex into account because, of course, that was unthinkable in 1936. And I think as a theology of marriage, we would be very wise to return to our tradition uh, and get away from these kind of uh, points of view that were developed very often by homophobic people on the west coast of the states in the 1990s, which are not really true to our tradition the way it is. Bishop Wilson, reciting your public ministry, I was astonished to come across references in which you were likened to the late David Jenkins, the former Bishop of Durham. Mm. Now, David Jenkins, as you well know, was very controversial, and he said, among other things, heretical things and the Church of England did split. What would you say to those who compare you to Dr. Jenkins? 
Well, I feel very flattered in some ways. I mean, I didn't know David Jenkins very well, though I did meet him once or twice. Um, it's interesting what people who are in David Jenkins' diocese say about him, mm. because I remember a friend who is a fairly uh, conservative evangelical from a church in the diocese of Durham, and I remember asking him at the time, how did you get on with David Jenkins? You know, did you have lots of problems with him kind of being heretical all the time? And the guy said, no, we didn't. He was the first bishop of Durham in years who treated us fairly, as, as did not discriminate against us because we were evangelicals. So I think there's a David Jenkins story that's bigger than the sort of cardboard cutout figure in the, the media mm. uh, that those who knew him better than me would be able to tell. Um, I suppose uh, in the Church of England, there is this need to have kind of people that that we believe are kind of heretics. It, it's kind of part of the thing, isn't it? Um to be really honest, Stephen, a lot of that stuff has died down years ago. I didn't. I mean, I go back to the generation where if you said something nice about gay people in the media, you got dogs shit put through your door, mm. you know, by by homophobes. Um, things are. I don't recognise that at all. Things have moved on to a completely different place now, uh, and I think the people who were very brassy about these things even five, six years ago, are much more sheepish about it now. And I think that's partly because younger members of uh, younger evangelical Christians are much more um, uh, attuned, if you like, to the culture than I think their elders and betters were. Uh, they don't feel that homosexuality is the worst sin and somehow the, the most dreadful thing that could happen to you. Little boys aren't told to sleep with their hands above their heads because oh, they'll end up like Oscar Wilde. And, you know, all that stuff that was sort of staple in English middle class life for uh, uh, the best part of 100 years, really, for a very long time, has really died the death. And I think the result is that younger Christians are just much more uh, nuanced, faithful, sensible, compassionate, understanding and I don't think they have the issues that people my age had. So my experience in general has been, I remember Tony Benn saying this about um, political progress. First, they say you're mad. Then they say you're bad. Then there's a very long silence. And then you can't find anyone who disagrees with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... <laughs> I'm I'm just going through the very long silence right now, but I think that's where it is. And a lot of the reviews on the book were fearfully superficial. They were mm. sort of, you know, this is being said by a bishop. He shouldn't be allowed to say this sort of thing. It's the biggest load of rubbish since, you know, Roger the Rubbish published the rubbish book of rubbish and nobody should ever read it because bishops shouldn't be allowed to say this. That's not a serious review of the book. And I think most of the points that I made in it uh, have stood up extraordinarily well for what it's worth. Um, I don't think that we've experienced in the last seven years uh, a complete meltdown in relationships in the UK and a complete meltdown. I don't think anybody's been forced to do anything against their conscience. I don't, all these sort of scare stories that were doing the rounds at the time the law was changed have really been shown to be rather empty. So I'm in my long silence right now. Uh, I had years being told I was mad and that I was bad and that I should shut up and I was a heretic and all the rest of it. We're in the middle of a, a slightly longer silence, though uh, the result of this may be to <laughs> bring that silence to an end. You understand? Yes, I do. <laughs> 
but uh, but I do think that that we're part of a bigger process, and the arc of the kingdom, the arc of justice, is much longer than the issues of the day. And I think looking back at David Jenkins, uh, a lot of people see him as a kind of prophetic figure on women's ministry, on all kinds of things. In fact, it's very difficult to remember um, how we used to talk about women's ordained ministry in the days that David was Bishop of Durham. You know, I remember a colleague in the very Anglo-Catholic deanery I was in in Reading saying, and he thought it was clever, uh, a woman can no more be a priest than a goat can be a Christian, you know, and everybody laughed. Mm. I mean, you know, now that is ludicrous. And I think that um, David was part of changing the scene on that. Uh, Many people will remember his speeches, both on nuclear disarmament and also on the the ordination of women, his intervention at the end of the women's ordination debates in General Synod. I think he was a great prophetic figure, really, and he was asking questions. And I think if we really have faith and we follow Jesus closely, we don't have to be afraid of questions and we don't have to manipulate people and, you know, and use fear tactics and scare tactics and mob tactics to lick them all into shape and bring them all into line. That is not the way of Christ. So insofar as I believe that, and I think David believed that, I'm very happy to be identified with him. (laughs) Continuing the theme of same sex and the Church of England. Hmm. What lessons do you draw from the murder case which happened to take place in your neck of the woods, mm. Maids Bolton, Buckinghamshire, involving an active churchman, Ben Field, and an elderly academic who happened to be gay? Yeah, that, that's been a, a, a real tragedy that, that all of us, I think, uh, in Buckinghamshire have been touched by one way or the other. And those of us uh, who are involved in church leadership, uh, particularly. Um, and it has to be said, I mean, the, the police said this during Operation Naseby, that Ben Field was a, a sort of one in a million criminal and psychopath. Mm. Um, you know, it's important that people don't think everybody's like Ben Field, because he was a very unusual young man. And he's inside for the next 34 years. So, um, so I think we all breathe breathe easier at nights. But he did show the dangers that Christian communities uh, face if somebody like Ben Field, who is a psychopath, um, uh, really grooms them and games them in the way that he did. And I feel nothing but compassion for those people who were taken in by him. And I'd say I was taken in by him too. I think we all, you know, it is the nature of, of that sort of grooming that uh, we'd all like to say, well, I was the person who knew all about him all along. I, I don't think any of us can say that. A lot of us had doubts, but we didn't, somebody did die and somebody uh, very precious and a, a rather wonderful man in his own way um, died. Mm. And I think we need to take responsibility for that and not hide behind a kind of institutional thing. Now, when this case happened, um, the Diocese of Oxford did commission a report from Addy Cooper. Uh, Addy is a very, very senior um, social worker with extensive experience of protecting uh, adults in particular. And I think the Addy Cooper report, even though it contains things that are very hard to read about our culture and our assumptions and things we just took for granted, I think is very necessary reading indeed. I think that she has um, 
you know, shined a light really into things about our culture where, you know, it produced a vulnerability. And I think like all career psychopaths, what Mr. Field was able to do was aim for the weakness and mm. really exploit it mm. and, um, and groom a whole community so that people wouldn't ask questions that they would have asked if they, if they had had a more open culture uh, to asking questions and to asking questions about relationships. So I, I would say it's a real, it, it's a tremendous tragedy and it affects a lot of people in the village and in the Christian community concerned. These are good and decent people who were groomed and then gamed and then hoodwinked by a very dangerous criminal. And, mm. um, and I think, one, we need to learn the lessons in terms of safeguarding. In the end, Field was exposed, funnily enough, because of a safeguarding report mm. from a solicitor and an estate agent, I believe, and a Catholic priest. Because when he started going after a woman and they were talking about marriage, then that lit all sorts of red alarm bells mm -hmm. and, and a safeguarding report went in. So part of the story is that we must really be on our toes about how we protect people and make churches the kind of safe places people believe they should be. Uh, including people who don't go to church, and that that's not something you can do by accident. It involves conscious work to make sure that churches are safe places. And I do commend Addy Cooper's conclusions um, uh, you know, on those grounds alone. And it also means that on a broader cultural level, we need to be much more honest in the way that we talk about relationships and we talk about sex. Mm -hmm. And that's not so much a theological point, I think, as a cultural one. Um, and it's it's very interesting because the latest book, and there will be many books on Ben Field, and uh, there are already two or three TV shows, I know, and other I think things. I've seen one book so far, yes. Yeah, well, the book that published most recently was by someone who lives in Buckingham and, uh, you know, is a, is a very good and competent criminologist. I mean, mm -hmm. he was looking at it as, um, if you like, an issue professionally as a criminologist. But he was also dealing with his neighbours and with the culture of the people. I think he's very involved in the rugby club. He's talking about his friends at the rugby club. I think the way in which communities can be gamed and the ways in which communities handle their stories about one another um, are very, very important. And I think as Christian people, um, you know, we follow the Good Shepherd and places and communities that belong to the Good Shepherd and which say they are the body of Christ need to shepherd people well, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> or being uh, eaten, then there's something wrong, as it says in the book of Ezekiel. You know, we've got a problem then. Mm. So I think uh, the Addy Cooper report has been a, a learning thing for me. It's made me realise that some of the things that we talk about as though they were sort of issues for debate can actually turn extremely dangerous and toxic if they're exploited by a dangerous criminal, which is tragically what happened uh, in, in the Ben Field case. And our, our love and our prayers go to the family of, of everybody, uh, of Peter in particular, but uh, of everybody who was uh, in any way gamed or exploited by this man. Bishop, small accidents may involve great consequences. Whereas we do not know how the global COVID-19 pandemic started, it is nevertheless astonishing how a tiny invisible virus has mm. shaken our world by the very roots. 
challenging everything we know. How would you, in your capacity as a shepherd in the Church of Christ, advise us as a society to listen and respond to events that challenge our most basic assumptions? Well, I would come back to the wisdom that Jesus taught his disciples, which I think had two different aspects to it. On the one hand, he taught his disciples to be rooted in the deep wisdom of God. You know, and somebody came up and asked him a question. He said, what does it say in the Bible? You know, he, he brought them back to their roots all the time. And, and he used those roots in very active ways, you know. Um, and I think that's necessary. But he also said to his disciples, look, you've got to be watchful. He said, you people are farmers. You know how to read the signs of the times. You, you, you know, you say to yourself, the red sky at night, you know, we know what the weather is going to be tomorrow. We'll behave appropriately as farmers. And I think Christians are called upon to be watchful people. And that means we should never be asleep, if you like, at night. Um, and there are ways of being asleep. One is where your eyes are closed. But there are also ways of being asleep where you think you know what you're seeing so well that you don't realize what it is when it grabs you. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, just the same way as it was in the days of Noah, that's what it's like in the days of the Son of Man. You know, they're all sitting there getting on with life, deciding that it's it's looking a bit rainy today. And, and it, you know, and they needed to build an ark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that perspective on life is a very healthy one for Christian people to take, to test the spirits to leave our critical faculties switched on in terms of the deepest things of God that we know, but always, always to have a kind of holy pragmatism about the reality round about us. Because all those parables that Jesus told about wedding feasts where they all fell asleep and then they ran out of oil, those parables are for us. So I would say we need to be very, very open indeed to listen uh, and to respond to events that challenge our most basic assumptions. It's part of being watchful. It's part of weighing the spirit. It's part of following Jesus Christ to do that. But we do that best when we are very grounded in the big things of God, you know, the, the love of God, the love of our neighbor, the Ten Commandments, you know, all these things uh, become the sort of ground that we stand on and from which we see the world. In addition to seeing our very foundations shaken by an invisible virus, the 21st century is now a witness to an absence or at least a decline in mainstream democratic party politics, giving way to the rapid rise in populism. How would you advise Christians to face up to this reality? Well, I think in the spirit of, of, of the last answer I gave, really, I, I think we need to be very critical about it. One of the things that, um, that's been very distressing, I think, for many of my friends who are evangelical Christians was the way that so many evangelical Christians in the U.S. just rolled over <laughs> for a man like Trump, you know, and just sort of took him at face value or said, we all know that he's, 
you know, he's he's pretty immoral in the way he lives his life. And we all know he's a liar. And we all know all that's what do they say built in or priced mm, in. Priced in but yes. still feel he can somehow advance our political ends. So we're going to ignore all that and pretend that it doesn't matter. I don't think we should be in the business of pretending that things don't matter. And I think we are undergoing a profound stress right now uh, with the Internet, with new media, with the way that we are, with worldwide communications, with uh, until COVID worldwide travel. Um, all of these things uh, cause challenges as well as uh, bringing opportunities. And I think that um, we need to be um, critical of, of our politicians in a constructive way. Um, we're not trying to destroy them because we don't like them, but I think we need to critique the stuff they come out with and where it's coming from and where it's going. Um, and I think we need to be especially critical of the superficiality of a lot of the uh, political pitches that we surround. I mean, whatever one makes of Brexit, and from my point of view, I, I suppose, yeah, I do think of myself as a European because my roots are in Central Europe, but um, the the truth is uh, I don't mind being a member of a political or economic reality like the European Union. It, it seems to me that's a political question and it's there to be worked at. And I would want to approach that um, pragmatically. You know, mm -hmm. what are the arguments for? What are the arguments against? Um, but this sense of being swept up into a project where nobody knew what it meant or where it was going to end up. It was like lemmings going over a cliff. So we went from the moment it's done, it'll be the easiest deal in history and we'll all find ourselves being richer, which is where it all started. And then we became uh, all the people who were keen on it started saying, oh, well, you know, it'll uh, will rise to the challenge. And then we got it might take 50 years for us to be able to recover from the damage it will do us. But it's worth it because it'll be just like the blitz all over again. Um I think a failure of critical sense and a failure of critical imagination can take you to some very stupid places. And the sheer stupidity that arises, um, all the things we were told would happen. Um, you know, currently you can't get a milkshake in McDonald's apparently mm -hmm. because you haven't got the delivery drivers because um, a large number of delivery drivers, 30,000 delivery drivers went back to the EU pre-COVID and only 600 have returned. Or something. I read that in the Times this morning. Mm -hmm. So you can't get a milkshake in McDonald's. Well, this is not unpredictable. You don't have to be psychic to see there would be issues about transport if you went ahead and did it. And I suppose it's a half-baked nature of the whole exercise. The fact that people just said, well, you know, do you like it, good or bad, thumbs up, thumbs down. Well, we'll do it then. And then there was this sort of idiot's run for the most extreme form of it that could possibly be. Um, I mean, before the Brexit thing, we were all told, well, we'd just like Switzerland, or we'd be just like Norway, or we'd be just like Canada, or we'd just like Singapore, and various things were being said, all of which I think were worth exploring. What would it be like to be like Switzerland? What would it be like to be like Norway? Do we want to do that? But there was none of that. It was just a mindless sort of rush to the bottom, really, mm -hmm. led by politicians on the make who frankly were much more interested in climbing the greasy pole and feathering their own nests than they were in the well-being of, uh, you know, uh, fishing fleets or lorry drivers, <laughs> for that matter, kids buying milkshakes in McDonald's. I don't think they cared about any of that. It was all about a fantasy that they could use in order to get themselves up, up the greasy pole. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Um, you know, whatever the politics of the thing and whatever the economics of the thing, 
I think we are called to be less deceived, to be more willing to uh, look at things the way they are, to be more pragmatic, to be more honest in the way that we conduct ourselves. And that would be my uh, advice. And in the meanwhile, mainstream uh, populist politics are, uh, you know, insane in my experience. Um, I read, I'm one of the very few Church of England bishops who, who watches the news in Hungarian. Mm. And, you know, just looking at some of the stories on the, the Hungarian state news, we've had stories about how many people are being vaccinated every day. Well, actually, Hungary has the second highest death rate in the world, considerably wow. higher than the UK, but they're not telling you that. Um, there's stories about how you need lots of gold during a virus, and Hungary has the most mighty collection of gold in Eastern Europe, um, apart from Romania and apart from Poland, of course, but we're not telling you. And there's a whole world of silly in there. You know, there was a lead story the other day about how dreadful the crime rate was in Sweden. Well, what on earth that got to do with, you know? And these sort of politically angled stories from um, populist leaders, I think... Um, on one level, they're pathetic, but on the other hand, that stuff works and it does, uh, you know, the fish rots from the head. And I think that we need to be very watchful indeed for that tendency um, wherever we live. That leads us neatly to the next question. You yourself are not just a churchman, but you're also a historian. In your capacity as a historian, you probably know better than most that the study of history is a great utility to all of us, most especially to statesmen. For not only does it teach us a proper humility, but it also gives us all a sense of perspective. Since the current British government came into office in 2019, members of this government have surpassed themselves in driving a coach and horses through our ancient conventions and customs, which are in fact the bedrock upon which the British and Britain constitution is based. Do you think, for example, that the seven principles of public life, also known as the Nolan principles, should be codified into British constitutional law and therefore made to be enforceable as a matter of law? Um, the simple answer is uh, yes, is the answer. Uh, I mean, when you look at the Nolan principles, what do you got? You've got selflessness, you've got integrity, you've got objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty, leadership. What's wrong with any of that? <laughs> what, what is the argument against any of those things being a standard to which those who serve the public hold themselves accountable? Um, so, yes, I think I, I'm a very a strong believer in the Nolan principles. As far as history goes, um, I think it is tragic how little we understand our own history. One of the great revelations of the COVID time was Black Lives Matter mm. and the kind of resetting of the way in which we see some of our imperial um, history. So, for example, we take great pride in having abolished slavery but do we take as much pride in the fact that we we compensated the slave owners? We never compensated the slaves. Indeed. I mean, who who needed the most help in that situation? So you know, and as well, of course, as as, as abolishing slavery, we invented transatlantic slavery, including Christian organisations. You know, those uh, slaves in the West Indies who had SPG branded into the 
foreheads and arms mm. by the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, um, we, we need to reflect on these things. They're part of the history as well as the story of Wilberforce, who's a great hero of mine. Mm. But, you know, you need to look Same at history here. whole, not just at bits of it. And I deeply regret that a lot of school history we do in England is very a uh, narrow band, if you like. You get, you get, you know, you do the Romans and you do the Vikings and you do Henry VIII's wives, and then you do about four lots of the Second World War. Well, I mean, that's a very thin diet for historical understanding. Um, in fact, I've even met an eight-year-old a couple of years ago in one of our schools, chair of a board of education, mm. who believed that all these people, you know, the Romans, the Vikings, the Victorians, the Nazis all lived in a kind of theme park at the same time. <laughs> so you could go from sort of Viking land, Victorian land. <laughs> and, and, you know, if we're teaching history that poorly, then it doesn't surprise me that people are easier to deceive about themselves and their own identity. So I'm very uh, passionately in, in, in favour of good historical understanding. It's not a magic bullet, but it's certainly better than historical ignorance. Bishop, when I was reciting your life, I came across an ancient quip which describes the level of commitment required for bacon and eggs. The chicken gives all she has, but for the pig, it's personal. Yep. Your career has been one long record of controversy, mockery and shunning. Of the two animals in the quip, which <laughs> animal would you say best represents you? A chicken or a pig? And is the experience worth it? <laughs> well, I'm a very proud keeper of chickens. We have four chickens out the back. <laughs> and we love them dearly. And we take everything they have every day. <laughs> we got three eggs yesterday. Um, and, and, you know, much of my life I've been very privileged. I've been very lucky, sort of white, male and stale and all a particular age and background. Uh, I don't feel I've given everything in the way that other people I, I've met and I come across have and do every day. Um, and people who live in grinding poverty, people who, you know, I mean, they are, their lives are, are, are impacted in ways that, that, that mine is not. And I need to be very honest about that and not pretend to be something I'm not. But I do think there is some theological virtue in being a pig, if I may say so. Jesus said that following him was a 100% business. Mm. It was an all-life policy. It wasn't just, you know, a bit of religion to make you feel better. Um, and I think that um, it is a whole way of life following Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, anyone who wants to follow Jesus Christ um, is going to find, you know, challenges to give themselves in ways they might not otherwise have found easy to do. And if that whole life of discipleship gets shrunk down into a kind of game of looking after yourself or respectability or what you do on Sunday mornings, then you're not getting, you know, you're being shortchanged. You're not, you're not, getting, you're not getting the real thing. So therefore, I think there is something of the pig who gives everything about following Jesus Christ. And I don't think there's, you know, any getting away from that. It's just part of the thing. And I think if you follow Jesus Christ, yes, you, um, you, you know, you, 
you have to, of course, um, accept that, that there are things you need to give. But I think it's about everything that you are as well. Um, and, and, and therefore, I, I'm going to wave a flag for the pigs, even though I keep the chickens. <laughs> well, for a boy who was born at Redford Barracks in Edinburgh, a boy who could have succeeded at anything, as you just confessed a while ago, why did you choose the priesthood? I, I suppose there's a sort of, uh, you know, uh, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time is one answer. Um, yeah, I was a Christian and I wanted to follow Jesus and I wanted to um, uh, to serve Jesus with the things I did in my life. And it seemed like a good thing to do. And I suppose if I hadn't done this, I might have been an academic. I was working in a university at the time and um, I, I suppose... Uh, yeah, I lived in a vicarage with a rather wonderful vicar, and it struck me he was having a lot more fun than I was, you know? His life was much more broad gauge, um, not in terms of personal benefits to him, but in terms of the richness of spiritual and human experience that, that he was dealing with. And I suppose out of that, I fell in love with, with parish ministry. So I, I went to uh, see the then Bishop of Oxford and explain my problem. And, and he was very, very helpful. But uh, I, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to say I am special and have some tremendous romantic story of how God chose me specially because I was, you know, I think we, we romanticize priesthood too much. Um, a man who I met at theological college, a man called Arthur Moore, who was a senior tutor, he used to say it was like being a bus driver, you know. He said he'd take all those ordination cards he gets in June seriously when he started getting cards from all his friends who were bus drivers saying, please pray for all bus drivers, and especially for me, because I'm starting work on the number 21 on Monday. You know, <laughs> And I think clergy do have a tendency to glamorize ourselves and to some, you know, have a great big story. I remember when I was a very earnest, serious, evangelical young man feeling I had to have a big testimony, you know, and the fact that I decided that the best thing I could do with my life was follow Jesus Christ was when I was a middle-class schoolboy in southeast of England. <laughs> I'd like to be able to say I was a crack cocaine addict who was pushing into everybody else, <laughs> you know, committed several murders before, <laughs> before seeing the light kind of thing. But the fact is uh, we are called as the people we are from the circumstances we are, and the calling emerges as we follow it. And I think for me, it's been generally a, a great joy to be a priest, to stand in this liminal space between people and uh, their identities and their spiritual longings and their pastoral needs and and their their need to belong in community. It, it's been a completely fascinating time, whether in prison, actually, or in, in, in the parish uh, or as a bishop or, or, or in, in all sorts of other ways. It's, it's been a real privilege and a joy to be a priest. My last question is this. If there was or is one piece of advice you could impart on our audience, what would it be? Oh, it's the it's this Jesus by the lakeside at the end and, and Peter comes round. He's made a complete mess of himself. And uh, Jesus says, do you love me? And uh, he says, of course I do. And he said, no, 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 do you love me? And he says, well, you know, uh, oh, come on, you know, you know that I do. And he's offended when he asks a third time. Uh, my advice would be the advice Jesus gave Peter, feed my sheep. 
get on with it. And and I'm that's why I'm interested in shepherds who love sheep more than I'm interested in shepherds who are trying to run a woolly jumper factory. You know, <laughs> it's related, but actually it's the sheep that God loves. You twit. It's not the product. It's the person. And I think um, that that principle. Yes, I would say uh, love God and feed my sheep and the rest will look after itself. Indeed. Bishop Alan Wilson, thank you very much for your time. That was great. Been a real joy to spend time with you, Stephen. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Indeed. God bless, dear Bella. Yeah. This podcast was brought to you by the Kamigasa Challenge website. The music, Playground Fan, is by R.J. Stalino. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to us and kindly let us rate and leave a review of the podcast. Until next time.